Thank you all for being here. Admiral Rogers, it's always nice. great to Thanks, um, share any room with you. For those of you who don't know, Admiral Rogers retired about 18 months ago as director of the National Security Agency and commander of Cyber Command. And we're here to talk about an uplifting topic, cyber war. Yeah. Um, before we dive into it, I just wanted to set a little bit of context. So in 1984, William Gibson coined the term cyberspace in his book, Neuromancer, which by the way also launched the cyberpunk movement and came up with the concept of the matrix. And he defined it as a consensual hallucination <laughs> experienced daily by billions of legitimate operators. It's now, not a, It's not a hallucination anymore. No, and that was 1984, 10 years before the first commercial website went up in HTTP protocol was created, and, and back then we sort of had this utopian sense of what the internet was gonna be, universal connectivity, universal interoperability. We actually didn't want it to be secure, and we also didn't envision the kind of malfeasance that can take place. We didn't think about resilient systems, about trustworthy We would data. have created a totally different structure if those were our concerns right. at the time. Misplaced human ingenuity, lust, power, greed, and we certainly weren't thinking about nation. There's state. a movie in there somewhere. Somewhere. There'd be a movie in there. Um, and nation-state activity, um, <coughs> adversarial activity in cyberspace. So I want to start with that. When it comes to nation-state activity in cyberspace, what's happening uh, out there? What are the classes of activity that that we're seeing? So remember, I always try to remind people: cyber is an extension of a broader strategic environment and it doesn't exist in isolation. So I always try to remind the teams that I was responsible for and then you know, as part of the leadership of the government. So let's step back and look at this. If you look at how the Chinese, the Russians, the Iranians, and the North Koreans use cyber, it's all slightly different. Let's take the North Koreans as an example. You're an, a nation that's isolated economically because of the global sanctions, and you look at cyber as a tool, among other things, to, you know, we can rob banks we can mine cryptocurrency. We can use cyber as a tool to go after casinos, gambling sites, places where there's money. I've never seen a nation state, except for North Korea, use cyber as a tool to go after money. But in the context they're operating in, hey, they're in a different environment. If you look at Iran, on the other hand, you're not interested in necessarily direct conflict with the United States and others, so tool cyber, along with other things like use of proxies. Cyber becomes a very attractive tool to engage in behaviors designed to create pain, potentially change behavior, but do it in a way that has a lower risk because there's some degree of anonymity and lack of direct, hey, you can't really prove it was us, or so they think at times. Um, Russia, on the other hand, you got to, sadly, I'd have to give them credit. They have looked at the dynamic between cyber and information and decided you bring these two together, we can do some pretty powerful things. And clearly, as you've heard both from Mike as well as earlier today, and I was part of all this, uh, you saw that play out in 2016 in a big way. Again, they viewed cyber as, as a tool, not the end. It's a means to achieve some things. China, on the other hand, look, they are trying to overcome what they believe is a technical and economic advantage in the West that has placed them, China, at a disadvantage for much of the 20th century. Their view is, so we are going to overcome that by creating the technologies that will shape the digital age. We'll create the company structure. They look at the West and they go, wow, you not only developed the technology, you got the global standard bodies to adopt it, and then you monetized it through these corporations. And these corporations generated massive economic advantage for you. 
it's not by, ch by chance that look at what they're doing. They are trying to overcome that by repeating it using a different set of technologies. They've asked themselves, what are the technologies that are going to underpin economic advantage in the digital economies of the 21st century? AI, machine learning, nanotechnologies, biotech, telecommunications, and 5G, all part of a strategy. Cyber then gets viewed as a way, you know, if we're going to overcome their advantage, we could either spend billions of dollars in a lot of years doing it ourselves, or we could do that and outright steal some of it, bring it back, we'll monetize it, we'll develop, we'll expand on it, it'll save us billions of dollars and literally, you know, years in developmental timelines. You know, the conversation sometimes is, who has the most sophisticated capabilities? And I've always felt that's actually the wrong question to ask, because it's not about who has the most sophisticated cyber capabilities, but who is using cyber most effectively to further their national interests. And I, I agree. And the other comment I would make is, and look at the risk tolerances. You look at what the Russians, for example, did in 2016, they're willing to engage in behaviors, as are other nations, that they believe represent pretty low risk. On the other hand, historically for us, we had the opposite view, which again, in my previous life, as a person on the inside, you know, in the sitting room and in the oval going, let's step back and ask ourselves, how do we get to a situation where our Chinese counterparts, our Russian counterparts, the Iranians, the North Koreans, they think cyber offers them low risk. And yet we have come to the opposite conclusion. So we start off by telling ourselves, here's what we're not gonna do. They don't have those discussions. Not, not, that's not the way they think. Look at the advantage this is creating for them. We need to change this dynamic. Right. When, when you were um, in, in those roles, there was this sense that if you took action in cyberspace, suddenly it was going to escalate to nuclear war. So there was this huge resistance to uh, persistent engagement in, in cyberspace. That's actually changed. Right. It started changing under you, and I know you were a huge advocate of, of persistent engagement, and like you said, fighting that, that theory that we, we can't engage because the risk is too high. Has persistent engagement in cyber worked to our advantage? So first, the, you know, the analogy I always used to get was, Mike, we, the United States, live in a glass house. We can't afford to, to throw any stones. And my comment was, can you tell me in a, an advanced economy in this interconnected digital world we're living in that doesn't live in a glass house? What do you think underpins the Chinese ability to move massive cargoes for an export-based economy? What is it that you think enables the Russians to run a national train system, for example? Guys, the, the world as a whole has inherent vulnerabilities in the world we're living in. So why we take this attitude, we're the only ones, I never understood that. So what we try to make, I and others, I wasn't the only one by any stretch of the imagination, but with the transition, one of the things we tried to argue was we need to change the risk calculus of others. Because if we don't, if they continue to believe that they can engage in these behaviors with little risk or little consequence, then history to me would suggest you can only count on them to do more and in fact potentially escalate over time. Guys, that's not in the United States' best interest. To be on the, uh, if your strategy is we are just gonna respond, that is resource intensive, it's gonna cost us billions of dollars, we're always reacting. My military career taught me, good or bad, you try to shape your opponent's behaviors to drive them to make choices that benefit you, not them. So my attitude was why we do this in so many other areas, why can't we do that in cyber? So we kind of collectively came with this idea of persistent engagement, i.e., 
how could we get out in this space and contest what they are doing on a regular daily balance within a legal framework? Right. Because we're always mindful, hey, look, we adhere <clears throat> to the global legal framework, everything we do with the law of armed conflict, I was always adamant, guys, cyber is no different. We have got to fit into this construct. And we have, we tend to be very black and white in the United <laughs> States. It's either war or it's not war. And right. when we it's like not these binary, good, bad, right. yes or no, either or. And, you know, in, in one area, we, we, talk, we used to talk a lot about violent extremism, for example, ISIS and Al-Qaeda, and the strategy has shifted to Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, partially because we were effective um, in taking on violent extremism uh, and all the activity they were taking on in cyber. To the extent you can, can you talk about how we were effective in cyber? Uh, against that enemy? So, first of all, broadly, I think you have to acknowledge we have had a measure of success against non-state actors in the form of violent extremist organizations like ISIS. Now, no one should take from that that we have eliminated them or that it has gone away. Uh, because I always try to remind people, look, the fundamental conditions that led to the generation of this, we haven't fundamentally addressed those. And until we get to that point, this isn't going away. What we've been able to do is knock it down to a much lower level of capability. Um, no one should think it's gone away. What we tried to do was, you know, one of the arguments I and others made was, we have got to show these guys that we are, have the capability and the will to contest them in every domain. We're not only going to fight them in the physical battle space of Syria and Iraq, but we're going to take it to them in the information dynamic and in the cyber arena. So their ability to spread their ideology using the World Wide Web and cyber and backbone, the ability to use that same system to generate revenue, the ability to use that kind of, those kind of global structures to recruit, the ability to use those structures to connect geographically dispersed entities and try to come up with, as we would say in the military, some form of command or control. My argument was it isn't going to be enough just for us to go kinetic in Syria and Iraq. We've got to fight them in every domain. We've got to take away their freedom of maneuver and we've got to take away some of their abilities that we've watched. Um, so we engaged in, in a series of activities which we have publicly acknowledged using cyber, you know, going after <laughs> the information infrastructure, going after the monetary infrastructure. Now, no one should think for one minute that we took it all away. You know, I said, look, if that's the objective you're going to give me as a military care man, I'm going to tell you right now, we got a low probability of success. Just given the way this is structured, it is unlikely. But I think we can significantly degrade, and I think we can send a broader message to them that we're ready to, to contest you. I mean, I, for example, we wanted them to know it was us. So I can remember telling the team, I want you to insert United States Cyber Command into the code. I want them to know it's coming from us. Just because I, I thought it was important to let them know, hey, DOD and the United States by extension are prepared to confront you in every domain. You, you have no sanctuary. You have no area where we're not prepared to come after you. So can you talk a little bit about that, about NSA and Cyber Command and what role those agencies um, play? And Cyber Command is, is more recently, obviously, right. stood up. Um, than so National Security Agency, the largest intelligence organization in the U.S. government, there's 17 different segments. It is the largest of the 17 by a fairly significant number, not surprising given the technical, the digital world and the technical world we're living in. Our nation has over time chosen to invest heavily in those technical capabilities than NSA has. It has two primary missions. 
One, using a, signals, using a single discipline, signals intelligence, to generate knowledge and insight about what is going on in the broader world around us. That's the traditional intelligence role. Take that information, combine it with others, that helps you get knowledge and insight, and hopefully that, that leads to better policy and better military decisions. The second part of the NSA mission, and one of the reasons why the decision was made initially that one individual should lead both organizations, um, NSA, because much of the telecommunications in the world 20 years ago shifted to the world of the network, NSA got really smart on the network, developed a lot of people with great in-depth knowledge, a lot of technical capability, and so NSA's second mission was defensive. How can you take this knowledge of networks? How can you take this knowledge of the things that actors do out there, and how can you translate that into insight that will help us better defend networks, build better networks? Um, NSA, for example, developed from the mathematical algorithms to the actual production. We did all the encryption for the classified systems in the U.S. government all the way up to the nuclear codes and, you know, the football for the president. Um, so NSA had those two missions. Then we made the decision in the Department of Defense about 10 years ago now. We saw the way technology and we thought warfare was moving and we thought to ourselves, cyber is going to be an operational domain in which actors, whether they be nation states, individuals, criminal groups, others, are going to use capabilities against our nation and against us specifically in DOD. We need a capability both to forestall that, but quite frankly, to also develop options that we can use cyber as a tool to put pressure on potential opponents. And so the decision was made, let's create a very traditional warfighting structure, just like Central Command that ran the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, let's create a, a similar. And at the same time, we said to ourselves, boy, we realize we got a big hurdle to jump to create something new. What's the center of gravity in the Department of Defense right now today, 10 years ago, that has people expertise, we can take advantage of the investments that have already been made. And it was clearly, was, hey, it's, an, it's NSA out at Fort Meade. So we made the decision, let's create a related but separate organization, different mission, different legal authorities. It would be hilarious. Sometimes at meetings, I'd have to say to the team, okay, I am speaking now as the director and I direct the following things, or I would say, okay, I'm speaking now as the commander and as the commander, you know, I, I direct the following things, but different budgets, different legal authorities, and I'd have to talk to different sets of lawyers about what's legal, what's not on which hat, et cetera. People don't often appreciate the amount of oversight <laughs> that the NSA- Which is good. That's the way yeah. it should be. I, don't ever, I never had any issues with that at all. So we had this one organizational change, but do, do we have a coherent strategy in cyberspace to go against these nation state adversaries who clearly have well-defined strategies in terms of- my, my biggest frustration was and remains, number one, I thought it wasn't that the government didn't have capability, it was the fact that this capability was spread across multiple organizations, multiple structures, with multiple authorities, multiple, as a military guy, multiple chains of command. And we created a structure that was so complex. If you were on the outside, if you were, you know, I'm, I run a big bank I'm in New York, I'm worried about the Iranians coming after me, who in the heck in the US government am I supposed to deal with? I've had more than one CEO tell me, how many three-letter organizations are doing this stuff, Mike? Or, hey, why can't we work, just work directly with you? And I'm going, that's not the way the government is structured. So the first challenge I always thought was, we have got to create something better within the federal government. But then secondly, I, thought, I always thought to myself, the greatest challenge of cyber is the fact that it 
forces you to rethink the traditional, the traditional mechanisms we've often taken to solve problems. In the DOD, for example, we love to use geography to define solutions. It's why we have a central command. It's why we have an Indo-Pacific command. It's why we have a European command. This, hey, don't worry, we'll just draw lines in the map and we'll break the problems down. And yet what we're finding in this century is problems don't necessarily just define themselves by geography. And one of the jokes I used to say was, so central, central command for the war in Afghanistan, I would say, do you know where most of your infrastructure is? It isn't in your area physically. So this idea that you can just control cyber guys, that's not going to work for us. And yet the other thing is, in, in our society as a nation, for a variety of very legitimate reasons, historically we've said there's a well-defined role for the private sector and there's a well-defined role for the government, and they need to do their things somewhat independently. I don't think that's the optimal solution in the world we're living in now. Put another way, you tell me how you expect private companies to withstand the determined efforts, level of effort, integrated strategies of entire nation states and just say, hey, it's up to you. Good luck with that Russian thing or that Chinese thing. Well, this is interesting because as we, as we become more active, not just in cyberspace, but as we become, you know, we took out General Soleimani recently. And the first conversation that happened after that is, oh my God, Iran's going to attack, you know, use cyber to attack the U.S. Um, and historically, we haven't responded to those, um, to those attacks. Iran attacked the financial services sector and there was right. no response. I Iran attacked Saudi Arabia. It was largely a defensive response. We didn't right. really um, do anything externally. So the, you know, and the Russians are all over our grid, for example. There's a book that came out recently, Sandworm, that documents all of that. Um, as we become more active, both in cyberspace but also in the kinetic world, the second, third order effects aren't going to be necessarily against U.S. military. They can very well be against the private sector. What exactly is the government's role in that scenario, and what is private sector's responsibility? Because it's it's, it's new territory for everyone, yep. right? If if uh, Iran dropped a bomb on a, you know, on a company headquarters, there's no question that would be an act of war. But when Iran attacked financial services, the White House said, not our problem, you guys own the defense, good luck. Heck, even when the North Koreans in November of 2014 launched two Viper malwares against Sony, right. I was part of that, and I'm going, you don't think that, you know, had this been done by a Tomahawk missile, for example, would we still be having the same discussion about well, it's really much more of a legal issue than it is a, an act of war. Um, we're clearly not there. I think on the private sector side, the, the whole idea to me is why can't we work collectively on these problems? I want to be in a situation where the pain of the one leads to the benefit of the many. So if one company, if one entity is dealing with the problem, we use that as a way to improve a broader set of actors. That isn't the way we do it now. The pain of the one leads to the continued pain of the many. You know, you keep asking yourself, so why do the same techniques used over and over again keep working? And I'm going, because we're not looking at this collectively. What works against one company isn't shared by anybody else. They're not with anybody else. They're not smart about what has succeeded, what has not worked. And so the actors just keep using, in many cases, not always, but you see the same techniques, the same approach used over and over again. And it, in many cases, has a high probability of success. Likewise, we got to figure out how the government can be more integrated and can then work with this broader collaboration environment. I just think we, to get where we need to be, we're going to have to be willing to step back and ask ourselves, are we really comfortable that we have these roles correctly aligned? Because I don't think we do right now. 
Uh, Harvard sociobiology professor E.O. Wilson has this great quote, which is, the problem with humanity is that we have, uh, what does he say, we have um, paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. And uh, technology keeps moving at this rapid pace, but our institutions are certainly not keeping up. Um, and of course, our paleolithic brain, and that's a whole other conversation around cognitive biases and the flawed human operating system, which gets in the way of everything. But when, when we look at that, um, starting with our institutions, the, the, the question I always get asked, which I have a hard time answering is, does China have an advantage because it's an autocratic regime over liberal democracies where you have to have consensus and sort of work on these problems in a cooperative, collaborative way and everyone has to agree to come to the table? Look, in the long run, I would take our cards every day over theirs. Um, I don't want to live in that kind of society. But you have to acknowledge in a short-term scenario, in many instances, autocratic regimes have an ability to direct action in a way that democratic nation states and institutions just don't. Now, we, because we're not comfortable with that, and also we believe our structure has led to great benefits over time. Um, and as imperfect as it is, and I have to say, look, we've created something special. We've created something that is a model for the rest of the world. Um, and it's something we ought to be very proud of, even as we have to acknowledge it is imperfect and we gotta keep working hard to continue to make it better and ensure that we're treating each other in a respectful, fair way. Um, you know, I used to tell people, look, the hardest part is not technology. The hardest part is how you change culture and people. Technology is easier to change and implement. It is the human dynamic. And for all this great technology, the greatest challenge and potentially the greatest benefit for us is if we can bring together the human piece in all this in a meaningful, effective way, combined with this great technology we've created, we'll have something really, really special. It's the cultural and the human piece that is lagging the most at the moment, not that there aren't well, technical to, challenges. To, to pull on that a little bit, part of the issue is trust, right? To, to, to have the collaboration and cooperation you're talking about, we need to have trust between the private sector and government, and that trust isn't there in a way that needs to be. China gets to completely control its narrative, right? When was the last time we saw a Trust anything? is not something you hear talked about much. No, <laughs> no, and, and they right. When we, we don't see China depicted negatively in any film, the last time was you know sometime in, in the eighties probably. Um, uh, you know, they, they get to completely control the narrative. They get to control how the information flows. In the U.S., we have you know we have the First Amendment. People can say what they want. How do we build that trust? Which is a strength for us. Like, it's a huge it's a strength for, for us. us. Um, but it makes it harder to have a controlled conversation. So how do we build that trust that is necessary to have this? Well, well first, we got to acknowledge, look, traditionally in our structure, it's, it starts from our very beginnings. We, start, we created this thing we call the United States of America in no small part because we had a distrust of this comprehensive, invasive government in the form of Great Britain that, with no input from us, would decide what houses they were gonna put their troops in, you know, billeting, how they were gonna restrict the, t the town square, which in our culture, even at the time, was, hey, look, we use this as the form to articulate our, our viewpoints, to express our disagreements. So we started from the very beginning and we created a structure in which we wanted to put a measure of control on the government. That 
combined with, you got to acknowledge at times the government has done some things in its history where you step back and say, that's not consistent with our values. That's not who we are. So the first step to me is always you got to acknowledge that. The, the second step is, so let's not be bound by the past to the sense to tell ourselves, so all that history leads you to believe you can't trust government at all. Thirdly, so what are the checks and balances that we can put in place as we're working for this more collaborative approach? What are the checks and balances that we can put in place to help ensure greater transparency, greater knowledge on the part of the citizens and greater awareness of, so what is the government doing? Um, you know, that's, that's one of the things that I would say the government historically has not been good at. I came in in the aftermath of the revelations, for example, and you know, my, one of my comments was, so what NSA, for example, was doing was in accordance with the law. Why weren't we having a discussion about this law? Do we like it? Do we not like it? Do we disagree with it? Do we think we ought to change it? One of my takeaways is you want to, be, uh, you want to do intelligence in a democratic structure in the digital age, then you better start from a premise that says you need to be open kimono to a much greater degree than historically we have been. Because uh, I'd rather have the discussion up front with our citizens about, okay, are you comfortable with this? Are you comfortable with that? Then, well, let's just assume they're comfortable. We'll go along and we'll do some things within that legal framework that was created uh, and was re actually renewed. In this case, the call data records piece was actually renewed you know, more than once by our elected representatives. Um, but because we didn't have that discussion, it suddenly led to this, we weren't aware of that. Can we trust you guys? I just think we need to do things a little differently. So how do we, as we look at the next waves of tech innovation, which have some pretty serious consequences that can go with them if we get it wrong again, uh, if we look at artificial intelligence, if we look at quantum computing, how do we make sure that we don't get to the same place and that it's not used against us from a... Right. So it's not the technology to me, it's the man and woman behind it. I was like, look, don't be a Luddite. Just don't sit here and make the argument technology is inherently bad, therefore we should step away from that. My argument would be, so look at the, the history of man. How's that played out? I I'm not aware of societies that have really been able to do that in a sustained way and achieve a measure of success, increased benefit for their societies. Rather, the challenge to me is much less the technology and much more the cultural and the human piece. So what are the controls that we're gonna put in place to make sure that the technology reflects our values? Technology can be used in lots of ways, lots of different ways. Some many good, some of great concern. It all depends what framework you're from and what you're used to. And in an authoritarian society, what might be perfectly reasonable? You know, one nation's smart city is another nation's. So you're creating this total surveillance framework and now you wanna score your citizens on their adherence to some social construct meeting government dogma? We don't want that, and yet, you know, we have the PRC looking at it. That seems like a perfect model for us. It's not inconsistent with our values and our history. We're very comfortable doing it in a way that would be totally abhorrent for us as a nation or for any other democracy. So I would like us to see us spend a little bit more time on those checks and balances, but I don't want to be intimidated by it. Technology offers a lot of advantages. It's all about us as people. How are we going to use that technology to reflect our values and what we believe in? Well, thank you so much. We're, you We're out of here, baby. Um, exactly on time, uh, as, as a great military person would. <laughs> so thank you so much for coming out here from the East Coast. I know uh, we both came out here from the and thank, thanks to Upfront for getting Much us better out weather out here. Washington, well done, team. Much better days. weather. Um, but thank you very much. Thank you all very much.